Um, I think Lindley's taking the kids out, or have they already gone out? They have? Yeah. Well, between Easter and Pentecost, uh, we've been taking a break from our uh, series Exploring Revelation. You might remember that before uh, Christmas last year, we worked our way through the vision of Jesus and uh, the letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And uh, then earlier this year, uh, we worked our way through um, the, uh, other pa- another part of Revelation, uh, looking at the, the seven trumpets and the seven seals, and uh, culminating in the battle between the dragon and the woman and her child in Revelation 12, uh, leading up to Easter. And today, we're getting back into it. And boy, are we getting back into it. Revelation 13, with its two visions of the two beasts culminating in that most mysterious, most well-known, most feared, most speculated about passage in the book, the mark of the beast, 666. Splash! We're right in the deep end. Maybe you've heard a lot of speculation about this chapter and that number. I know I have down through my life. There's always been people who have said, aha, it's this, it's that, it's this. And, uh, um, you know, very recently, I guess it's also come to the fore again with COVID passes and vaccines. You know, it's very easy to interpret the world around us through the lens of revelation. But before we do that, it's important to understand the book and what it was saying to its original readers. Then, once we've understood that, we can begin to look at how it applies to us today. So remember, firstly, that it's a letter to a specific people in a specific time and place. The early church in Asia Minor, that's modern-day Western Turkey, at the end of the first century. Remember, they are facing a specific situation. For the first time, they were going to be facing state-sanctioned persecution. Were they ready? And uh, it had already started. Uh, Antipas, we're told in the letter to the church at Pergamum, had been martyred. Pergamum was the first place where there was a temple built to honour the emperor as God. And also remember that John calls it a prophecy, that it's God's specific word to those people in those days. But because it's God's word, it resounds down through all time. But also remember, it's an apocalypse. That's a genre of literature, a way of speaking about what's going on in the world. Think today maybe about political cartoons, And you need to know what's going on in the world to be able to interpret political cartoons, right? And uh, it's a way of speaking about what's going on. It was very popular in the first century and it was full of weird and wonderful images, weird and wonderful beasties, symbols and symbolic numbers. And it painted history on the vast stage of eternity. But it's a genre that is foreign to us today probably as foreign as science fiction would be to the people then and there. That's part of the challenge when we come to this passage. 
Now, the chapter that we're looking at is two interconnecting visions of two beasts. And then in the middle, in a very Jewish way of speaking, in verse 9 and 10, are the words of encouragement, are the central theme of this passage, uh, the central encouragement for God's people. In the midst of what is going on, we have instruction for the people of God to patiently endure with faith. The first vision starts with the dragon, symbol for the devil, who you remember in chapter 12 had been thrown out of heaven after warring and trying to kill the woman and her child, which speaks of God's people, speaks of the church. But the dragon does not cease to war against God's people, but now it uses intermediaries. It uses humans and human institutions. And we have a fierce beast that rises from the sea. A beast with its different body parts resembling different specific animals. And it has ten horns and ten heads. You know, the dragon has ten heads. And a blasphemous name or an insulting name to God is written on each head. And one of the heads of the beast is wounded, but the fatal wound is healed. The dragon gives the beast authority and power for a period of time. And people will worship the beast and the dragon because of the beast, and they will ask, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against him? And you know what? That's a parody and a mockery of Exodus 15, where the question is asked, who is like unto thee, O Lord? The ones, we are told, who will not worship the beast are those whose names have been written from the beginning of time in the Lamb's book of life. Well, let's unpack this one. <laughs> the first thing is that for John's first readers and for us, the beast rising out of the sea is not a new image. You know, it's imagery that's taken from the Old Testament. And in particular, Jan Daniel chapter 7, where there's an image of four beasts that rise out of the sea. The first beast like a lion with wings, the second like a bear, the third like a leopard, and the fourth almost too terrible to describe. And all those things, as we read through Revelation 13, are seen to be part of the Revelation beast. And that's helpful, because in Daniel we're told what the beast represents. They are kings or kingdoms or empires that will rise from the whirl and swirl and chaos of time. Empires that will assert their authority over the earth and ultimately against God's people. Now, there are two schools of thought uh, about associating those beasts in Daniel with historical empires. Some point to the Seleucid king Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, as the fourth king or beast, uh, and who that, that king unleashed a persecution of the Jews in 168 BC. He wanted a statue put in the temple. And that caused the Maccabean Rebellion. And other interpreters, including early Jewish interpreters, point to Rome. And you know, in the vision in Revelation 13, when we see the beast like these other uh, beasts rise, we can see that this is another human empire. And it's clear for John that he has Rome in mind. For the people of Asia Minor, Rome was the beast from over the seas. It was the imperial power. 
The ten horns and the seven heads uh, equally are images from Daniel. Of course, uh, the fact that Rome is a city built on seven hills also kind of helped it fit in. The idea of the blasphemous names on each head points to the fact that the Roman emperors were now demanding to be worshipped as gods. N.T. Wright points to the Roman coins of the time where the emperors had their image on it and they were called son of God. You can see how that would be blasphemous to Jews and to Christians. And they were portrayed dressed in the garb reserved for the dark pagan gods worshipped in Rome. And I apologise for my pronunciation of Latin uh, emperor's names. The Roman emperor Domitian, right? Something like that. Uh, even demanded the title Lord and God. Nero had been the first emperor to openly persecute Christians. He set hundreds of them alight as human torches to light his garden at night. And in 69 AD, he committed suicide rather than being killed by his own soldiers. Apparently, he wasn't that great a leader. And, and there was a time after his death when it looked like the Roman Empire was going to crumble or at least become a republic again. And there were a series of four generals in their armies over a period of year who came and lay siege and lay claim to the throne of Rome. It wasn't till Vespasian, I've got it wrong again, sorry, Chris, <laughs> came back from besieging Jerusalem and took control did the empire come back to life again. And Vespasian's son Titus was left to finish the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Also, at the same time, there was a myth that Nero had not died, but was laying low and planning to come back to life. So John picks up these elements of the empire in disarray and then coming back to uh, you know, assert itself strongly. And this sort of uh, myth about Nero to uh, describe the beast. You know, it's Rome. He's using code because he's a, you know, he's actually a prisoner at the time of Roman authorities to talk of Rome. But he also paints it in its true colours as a pagan empire hostile to the people of God. And I want to note a couple of things uh, the first was that the beast was given authority to rule, was given by the dragon, but, you know, ultimately God allowed these things to happen. You know, it does not have complete authority, it's given. And in the vision in Revelation 10, we have the picture of the giant angel. Remember the giant angel who was but a servant of God, standing on the sea with one, one leg on the sea and one leg on the land. So even before the beast rises out of the sea and the second beast rises out of the earth, we have an image in, in Revelation that says that authority over all heaven and all earth belongs to God. The second thing is like all pagan empires, they call, cause people to worship their own gods, which John ultimately exposes as the empire. Oh, sorry, the dragon. The last thing is that we have a parody of Jesus, the Lamb of God here, who died and came back to life again. And it shows the dragon and the beast are simply counterfeits of what God has ultimately been doing in history. And those who do not worship the beast are those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. It refers to God's people who remain strong. The Lamb who was slain from the 
creation of the world shows that while the beast has authority uh, to rule in a set time, God's salvation plan, his calling of his people to himself, and his, uh, you know, his, his whole plan for humanity was from the very beginning and is an internal plan. And that's important when we face times of suffering and difficulty. Well, let's move on to the second vision. In this vision, we have another beast who rises from the, the land, and it has two horns like a lamb, but it speaks like a dragon. And it exercises authority given by the first beast to make the earth worship the first beast, the beast that was wounded by the sword but was healed. The second beast is given power to do wonders and to make the image of the beast speak. And all who refuse to worship the beast will be killed. And those who do worship the beast will be given a mark that allows them to be involved in commerce. And that number is 666. And there's subtle differences between the two visions. Uh, the second beast comes out of the land, and it serves the first beast. This is a local beast. It is a local expression of the pagan empire. The second is, also looks like a lamb, but spoke like a dragon. And in Matthew 7, Jesus speaks of being uh, warned of false prophets who are wolves in sheep's clothing. This is a picture of the local authorities and officials in Asia, and Mi Asia Minor who enforce emperor worship as a way of proving their loyalty to Rome. The priests of the imperial cult who enforce that worship, who are false prophets. They might be lamb-like, but they speak with the voice of the dragon. And they were able to do wonders, which is why in Scripture we are told to be weary of such things. Such things do not automatically talk about God at work. You know, but there's also evidence in other Roman writings uh, complaining about the tricks and machines and different sort of uh, strategies that these, these uh, priests had to make statues talk and to have fire come out of the sky. But the reality for, for them was, well, you can have your own God as long as you worship the ooh, as long as you worship the emperor as God, as long as you will pour out a drink offering and say Caesar is Lord. And for Christians and for Jewish people, that would have been anathema. Pergamum, as I said before, was given the honor to be the first city in Asia Minor to build a temple for the worship of the emperor as God. And it would be something that expanded to all people in Asia Minor. And then the second beast would put a mark on people's foreheads and right arms, without which they could not do commerce. The forehead and the forearm were the most visible parts of the human body. Soldiers would have tattoos on their forearms to show whose army unit they were in. And runaway slaves cruelly would have their master's seal or initials or number branded on their foreheads. So for John's first century readers, they, they would have understood that talking of this mark was speaking of a mark of servitude and ownership. Now in some times and places, you'd have documentation that you'd sacrificed and worshipped the emperor, and you had to have that documentation to do business. And this may have been in John's mind. In the end, we don't know. 
But what we do know is this mark of ownership was a mockery of the seal that Revelation 7 told us that God had put on his faithful people. Whether it's a real seal or it's a symbolic way of talking about the only way you could get on in society in that time was to sacrifice to the emperor, we don't know. Okay? We are then told that we need to have wisdom to understand the mark, that it's a man and its number is 666. Now, down through history, there are many people who have said, Aha, I'm wise, I know what it means. It means we all have bated breath. But, um, you know, uh, in the ancient Near East, letters were given numerical value and could be used as shorthand to refer to a certain person. And uh, it was commonly used, so John uses it here. Six, of course, is just one letter off, one letter below the number seven, which is God's number, and a number for perfection. And the repetition of, the th of it three times also points to the idea of the dragon and the two beasts as this sort of unholy counterfeit trinity. And its meaning would have been known to most of John's first century readers more clearly than for us today. And by the end of the second century, we have church fathers in their writing speculating about who 666 actually refers to. They have this whole list of possibilities. Um, many scholars today believe it refers to the numerical name of a certain Hebrewic way of spelling Nero Caesar. Nero was the first state persecutor of the church and is seen as being archetypical of the Antichrist. As human empires turn against God's people, they show themselves to be the beast. They are acting like Nero. Most scholars also believe that in the end we can't be totally certain. But what is certain is that for Christians it was going to be a challenge. And it was a solidly a genuine distinction between choosing to be faithful to Jesus Christ and face the consequences or to compromise their faith and to worship the emperor. Okay, They weren't going to be tricked. It wasn't going to be a slippery, slidey slope. It was going to be that definite decision. What are you going to worship? Well, how then do we apply this passage to our time and place? Woo. <laughs> Firstly, throughout human history, there have been human empires and regimes and rulers who have acted in that beast-like manner demanding the worship and loyalty that is actually due to God. We can name a lot of people from recent history who might fit that. Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, Idi Amin. And you know, Christians in those times and places have often been put into the position of choosing whether their faith in Jesus Christ is something they're willing to suffer and die for or to turn away from. For example, in Japan, in the Shogun era, Christians were asked to sacrifice at the Shinto temple and to denounce Christ, or they would face imprisonment, horrible tortures, and death. And we see it in many countries around the world today as well. Christians are a persecuted minority. And Revelation also points to the fact that this will keep on happening until we have the final victory of the Lamb. Will it get worse? Will there be a final fulfillment of the picture in Revelation 13? That's a good question. That's a good question. 
You know, you just look at the world today, there sort of seems to be more ways of control and all that sort of thing. But maybe the right response to that question and the way in which it challenges us uh, is best described in the words of a US senator who visited Christians in China and reported, I have sat at the feet of believers in China who are even now being fitted for their white robes that will adorn the saints. And compared to their finery, I feel spiritually naked. See, the second thing is that this passage is a challenge to us as God's people to continue to be faithful, to continue to worship Christ, to continue to wrestle with what it means to worship Christ and not the beast. And you know, I fear that we have been through a time in the church in the West where we have made compromises in so many ways. You know, we are, have been in the middle of our own empire. We have felt constrained by the draw of commerce, of the ability to buy and sell. We have been allured by the wealth of consumerism. In the letters of the church in Laodicea, we see that they'd become comfortable in their society. They'd become at ease, lukewarm. They'd fallen asleep. Jesus was on the outside. Were they going to be ready for what was to come? And it's a challenge to us. You know, where is our faith in our lives? Is it central? Is it something we're prepared to suffer and die for? Um, and you know, it's easy for us to point to the evil empire beyond ourselves and our borders and to point at our enemies down through history and say, there, there's the beast. But one of the things that post-colonialism is doing is that it's pointing the finger back at us. And it's making us realise that just maybe for indigenous people, we have been siding with the dehumanising and oppressing beast of European empires. Now, I know that's controversial. But, uh, you know, we're actually being moved to the margins of our society. And I think that's the place that we just need to be. And we also need to be aware of the subtleties of the dragon and the beast as well as when it acts in brutal force. But lastly, lastly, the message of John to God's people is not one of fear of the future or worrying about what is to come. Mind you, it's kind of quite human, isn't it? It's human. It's why when people get up and talk about these things and how they connect with what's going on in the world around, it triggers our emotions because that's an anxiety we have. But rather, as we look at the whole book and the whole message is to realise that God is sovereign. God is ultimately in control. And we face, yes, we can face times of hardship and even those of oppression and persecution with patience and endurance and faithfulness because of who God is and what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, Phil. The middle section of this chapter starts with words that echoes Jesus' own words in the gospel. For those who have ears to hear, this is what we need to pay attention to. And uh, it's, uh, you know, it says, those who go into captivity will go into captivity. Those who die by the sword will die by the sword. These things will happen. You know, but they're only said in this book after we've seen the vision of Christ glorified. They only come after, you know, that this is for a time, only after we've seen the eternal nature of God's rule and God's plan. 
you know, that the apocalyptic genre allows us to glimpse. It's only after we've seen that God has sealed his people in Revelation 7, uh, for which the mark of the beast is a pale and oppressive parody, that, that we're introduced to it. It's only after we see the vision of the multitude before the throne who have overcome by the power of the, of the lamb who was slain in heaven, clothed in white with a victor's crown. It's only after we see those wonderful visions of glory that we see the reality of the beast. And because of that, we can persevere. Because of that, we can be faithful, trusting God through those tough times and keeping on with our faith, being faithful witnesses. And we do it not in our own strength, but with Jesus before us, who has gone before us, who's faced suffering and death. And been raised to life. Jesus who is with us and within us by the Holy Spirit. As Paul puts that hope in terms that we're more used to. He sort of drops all the apocalyptic stuff and speaks plainly. Again to a church that had faced persecution. The church in Rome. When Romans 8 he says, there is nothing. And there's a whole list of these horrible things. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Amen? So, faithfully persevere. Keep on following and worshipping the Lamb who was slain, witnessing to the hope we have, the eternal hope, even in the face of present suffering. Amen. Whew. <laughs> 